you know, we've had a, a wonderful journey raising children and, and being a part of raising a church here for like 35 plus years. And uh, we had four children and there was a point in time where we had a fairly small home. It seemed big at when we started, but it was small as our kids got big and they're all good, you know, scrapping kids. And, and so I remember we had one bathroom, you know, and at the time I thought one bathroom, you know, people used to live with an outhouse. We'll be fine with one bathroom, you know, it'll all be good. And then they all grew up and then it's time for, you know, we have a wife and a daughter, the other are boys, but they weren't always so fast either. So it's Sunday morning getting ready for church. You know that drill, some of you with a bunch of kids. So we had one bathroom. So it was just just constant get to church without a war fighting over who's in the bathroom. So I finally solved it. I came up with a timer and I said, okay, when this door opens, you have X number of minutes. When those minutes are done, uh, the door is going to swing open and your brother's coming in. So you better be done because that's just what's going to happen. And, and so we'd cycle through it. Long story short, we made a decision. We were going to build a bigger home and we really felt inspired to do it. And uh, it, you know, we laid out plans and we made preparations and we were going to sell our house <laughs> and it was a kind of a fun journey. The only issue is we didn't have enough money for a down payment. So that was kind of a cloud hanging over our head, but you know, it never stopped us before as a church. We've never had all the resources we've needed to start. So we just believed that God would provide. And we waited and it was a long time, months and months and months and uh, nothing moving, nothing happening. Of course we're praying. And then it was like December. It was a very unique happening and it'll relate to our story in a moment. And uh, we lived on a, a short little street here in Boston, Wisconsin. And, and my wife got this wonderful idea. And she said, you know, honey, we've been praying. And I just really, I've got to do this. You know, one of these, I've got to do it moments. I've got to do this. And what is it? I really have to bake these cookies. And we need to take them to all of our neighbors. And, you know, wish them Merry Christmas. Tell them God loves them. Something like that. Said, okay, great. Let's do it. But to her, it was a big deal. So sure enough, baked all the cookies, wrapped them up real pretty, wrote a note inside from us and told them, you know, how much God loves them. It's just something simple from their neighbors. And so one cold day we go out and we walk down the street and knock on our neighbor's doors, offer them some Christmas cookies, whatever, got all done. Some of them weren't home. We left them on the door, went back home. And a few days later, I got a call from an obscure relative who I didn't think had any money and I didn't think even knew we were thinking of building a house. There's nobody knew that we needed money. Nobody except one. It wasn't this person. Called up and said, hey, uh, what are you doing with your house? I said, yeah, well, we're going to build it. I've learned all how to speak by faith. You know, it's like uh, we're going to build it. When are you going to do it? Real soon. <laughs> and uh, and I could tell that they were fishing for something. And I thought, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I say, you know, it, it'll be good. We're all good. And, and they said, well, the reason we're talking to you is we really feel like, I really feel like God wants me to help you. And out of the blue, wrote out a check for significantly more than we needed for a down payment for that house and started the house. And then our house sold in a crazy way where it all just worked out. And, and it turned into, we got into a home that we couldn't afford in a way that God provided. Now, if you understood all the details, you would have looked at it and went, wow, that was a miracle? Maybe not, but it wouldn't have happened without God's answer. But you know what it all came back to? I went back to my wife and I said, honey, isn't this cool? Look how this whole thing's working out. 
she started crying. And she said, you know what this was? She said, when I told you that we needed to do those Christmas cookies for the neighbor, I said, yeah. She said, I felt like God was really challenging my heart. And this is what I felt like he said to me. This is what she said. Why would I bless you with a nicer home in a new neighborhood when you haven't even reached out in love to the neighbors that you've had? And I thought, <clears throat> would it take you a whole year to bake those cookies for? <laughs> Not really. But it was a profound little moment in our lives. It was profound because she made it clear, and it was obvious by our experience, that the whole chain of events, the working of God, us getting a new home, who cares about the home as much of the fact that God worked on it? And what did it hinge on? Did it hinge on Pastor Paul having great faith? No. Did it hinge on some great spiritual feat that we did? No. It hinged on, I put you in this neighborhood, you have done nothing to reach out to these people. So when you do those guys, maybe I can give you some new neighbors. Maybe you'll reach out to them. One little event of kindness, one act of kindness, one reaching out to people turned our whole situation into, lightly speaking, a miracle. We're going to read a story in Jesus' life where a situation was turned into a miracle. And we're going to look at it. The reason I've called it the beginning is because I think this miracle can be used as a pattern for most of them in the whole experience of Jesus. So let's read the story found in John's Gospel, chapter 2. It starts out by saying, on the third day. Now, this is the third day after Jesus' encounter, or one of them, with John the Baptist, where he was choosing some of his disciples. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, now, you know, that's sort of disrespectful sounding today, woman. You know, I don't know if a young man calling your mother a woman. It really, the word would be translated, my lady. It's a respectful word. My lady, what does this have to do with me? What is somebody running out of wine at a wedding? What is this? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants. <laughs> Mom just ignored him. Do whatever he tells you. Kind of put him on the spot. <laughs> what are you going to tell him? Now there were six, watch this, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Come back to that. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. It's almost 200 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine until now. This is the first, or the beginning. This is the beginning of his signs, the beginning of his miracles. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. 
He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The beginning of his signs, the first of his miracles. And what a miracle. And yet somehow as we examine this miracle today, I feel and I've certainly began feeling this way myself. But I feel like many of us don't understand the profound miracle that really happened here. Oh, we get the physics. We understand water into wine is a miracle. I don't think we understand the why. I don't think we understand the how. And that's what we're going to look at today. I believe that we'll see in this miracle a pattern for many of Jesus' miracles, if not almost all of them. Let's understand the setting, first of all. I mentioned our trips to Israel, and, and if you've been to Israel on one of our trips uh, or any other, you probably visited a couple of places like Nazareth, and there is a town now called Cana. So here's a couple of background, in, some background information that will help you understand, I believe, the miracle. Give me just a moment or two to explain it to you. So first of all, Nazareth. Cana of the Bible is hard to track to the modern Cana of today, but Nazareth is there. Nazareth in the time of Jesus was very close to this village of Cana, maybe five, six miles away. And Nazareth was a small village of peasant farmers and workers. Nazareth had about 400 people living in it at the time of Jesus. It wasn't giant city, small village. Nazareth and Cana were made up of the same economic class of Jewish people. They were, we would consider them working poor people, but they were poorer than working poor people today. They were either peasant farmers or they were hired laborers by the day. Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, was the hired laborer. It's evident from history that he worked uh, in a nearby city that Rome was building and he helped do building projects there. These people were number one, economically depressed. They didn't have a lot of money. Number two, I asked you to remember the Jewish water parts that were filled. <clears throat> These people were very conservative, strict Jewish people. That's true of the history of that region in the day, more so than some of the other Galilean towns. They were a little bit off the beaten path and therefore they were the ones that took their faith very seriously. The water pots that were filled were used for purification rites. Many of you have heard stories like the miracle at the Pool of Bethesda. Who remembers that story? Pool of Bethesda. The man who was born blind had to wash mud off at the Pool of Siloam. You remember those pools? Those pools were cleansing pools. They were used for rites of purification. Before the Sabbath, before a holy day, before a spiritual event, the Jews would pour water over themselves and have a ritual cleansing. And since Nazareth maybe didn't have as many pools, they had giant pots of purification water. Now, why am I saying this? Because if you're like me, maybe you don't want to admit it, but growing up here in Wisconsin, all the years ago that I did, we went to a lot of weddings. We were farm neighbors, and if anybody got married within a 10-mile radius, everybody got invited to the wedding. And we went to weddings, and I don't know that they had a lot of wine, but they had a lot of other things to drink. And I also know that I remember very few weddings, even as a child, where I didn't see people stumbling, passing out, throwing up, and making genuine fools of themselves at wedding dances from overdrinking. So I read this story, and I think, Jesus, what are you doing? Because at the weddings I was at, the last thing in the world they would have needed is more beer after all that. Water would have been the best thing for them. But it wasn't like that. 
these people were very observant Jews. They wouldn't have had a wedding feast and got stone drunk. Wine was what you drank. Water was often impure. Wine was what they drank. And so they had a wedding feast. And the wine was the drink like the food. Another thing that's important to remember is the concept of hospitality in the Jewish or Eastern mind is different than us today. You know, hospitality, maybe years ago, used to be a bigger thing now. You know, hospitality, you know, my wife's great at hospitality. Everything's a party. It just doesn't, you know, we can have, we can have some neighbor's dog over and we're going to have a party for it. You know, she, she loves parties and she's really good at it. I'm not so good at hospitality. I just reduce it to science. Are you really thirsty? No. Are you really hungry? No. Okay, great. Then let's just watch the show. That's why you came. And um, I miss those cues and she helps me and I get it. But in the days of the Bible and in the Eastern culture or the Jewish culture, hospitality was a moral requirement. A moral requirement. Perhaps some of you remember watching stories. I watched a war documentary about the Iraq war where some of the enemies of the American soldiers literally gave their enemies shelter and didn't kill them because they came to them without weapons and said, we are in need of hospitality. And they said, our culture demands that I protect them and shelter them in my home because hospitality is a moral requirement to me. That was the mind of the Jewish people, which says what? You have a wedding. You invite guests. They come. You don't have wine. You don't have anything to serve them. It's a moral shame for that family. It isn't about how drunk can they get. It isn't about, hey, this wine's really good. It was a moral requirement for that family to entertain their guests with hospitality, including wine to drink. And there comes Jesus. And what's the crisis? They're about to be shamed. Because for this family, had they let the situation happen as it were, and why did I bring up all the peasant poor situation? It's because they probably didn't have enough money. They probably scraped together every, every shekel they could to put on this wedding and realize that people are either drinking more or more people came than we anticipated and we're out of wine. What are we going to do? This family would have been shamed for generations as the family who wouldn't feed their guests. And that's why Mary came to Jesus with such strong feelings. Son, they're out of wine. Not they're out of wine and a good thing too. They're out of wine. The family will be shamed. These are good people. They're good Jewish people. And now they don't have enough. They're in financial need. They're in a crisis. What are you going to do? That's the setting of the water into wine miracle. It was an otherwise good family, as far as we know, who would have been shamed because they didn't have enough. And Jesus steps into their need and does his first miracle. And in that miracle, I believe we will see a pattern. So a couple of other thoughts that might, might be worth watching. It said that Jesus looked at the people around him and said, fill those pots with water. You know, and we'd be thinking, you know, we're praying over someone, fill the pots with water. We think, well, what's he doing? These people were conservative Jewish people. How many of you here 
probably not conservative Jewish, but how many of you remember the story in the Bible of Elisha the prophet telling the widow who was going to have her children sold into slavery because she couldn't pay her bills, and Elisha said, borrow a bunch of jugs and bring them over and take the last of your oil and pour it. How many of you remember that story? You remember it. You don't think they remember that? You don't think when Jesus said, you see all those jugs? Fill them with water. And they're thinking, here we go again. We haven't had a prophet in this land for 400 years. Something's going to happen today, boys. Go get that water. They were expecting that. When Mary said, do whatever he tells you, it wasn't like, hey, yeah, whatever. He's got good ideas. They knew the setting was a miracle. Something was about to happen, and they filled this. This is a lot of water to fill. You're carrying it and pouring it in those buckets. And they filled it up. And they're standing there. Now what? Draw some out and take, let the wedding planner taste it. Okay. And out they went, walking softly, I bet. Like to taste this? This is the best wine ever. They go, yes. And it says his disciples believed in him. Now, why is that important? It's important because he just picked them just days ago. They were new. They were willing to follow him. They would have seen him as a rabbi, maybe a prophet. One of them, Nathaniel. By the way, Nathaniel came from the town of Cana. One of them, Nathaniel, said, I, I believe he's the son of God. But, but that was premature. Most of them were following him as a rabbi, a teacher, and maybe a prophet. And they saw this miracle, and they go, we made the good choice, boys. Peter, James, John, Matthew, good choice. We're following the right guy. This miracle was the beginning. It was also a pattern. And I want to look at how the pattern might speak to us today. So first of all, in the pattern, Jesus' miracles were done to help people. Everyone say help people. Jesus' miracles were done to help people. I took all that time giving you the setting and the backdrop for this miracle because I don't think we appreciate a lot of what happened. I think sometimes in, in modern America or even the Western modern mind, we view Jesus as sort of this weird God magician. And he kind of just walked around and did stuff that nobody understood like, poof, watch this, ah, miracle. Going to believe now? And while certainly... These miracles helped people to believe in him. Certainly that was the case. I don't believe they were the primary motive. And here's why. How many times have you read about Jesus doing profound miracles in the Bible and immediately telling the people, don't tell anybody about it? Right? How many of you read that? If, if the major goal of those miracles was for everybody to believe he was the son of God, well, get CNN in here and let's get this on TV because people need to see Instead, he said, don't tell anybody. The goal of the miracle, certainly it made people believe. But the real goal was to help people. This was a good family which was about to be shamed. Their name, otherwise respected, would now be degraded. And Jesus' mother was concerned. And Jesus said, you're right. Let's do this. And now the memory was profound. And 2,000 years later, we're still telling that story. Jesus does miracles to help people. 
people that wanted to do the right thing, but they lacked the resources. What was the real need here? Wine, yes, probably they did the best they could. Anybody that's ever hosted multiple weddings for multiple children and had to pay for them, realize that you realize there's limits. <laughs> weddings are expensive. And I'm sure they were expensive in their day. Not only did these people end up with a nice wedding, but the reputation of a good family was rescued. Jesus did that. Why? Because Jesus helps people. You'll see that pattern in the miracles of Jesus all through the Bible. And why is that important? And what does it say to us today? Well, we think, like we often do, we pray for miracles. We pray for God to intervene. We want God to do really cool things and glorify his name so everybody will believe. But sometimes we remove ourselves from the place where the miracle is going to happen. Do you know where the place is where the miracle is going to happen? Where people are in need and Jesus is helping them. That's where the miracles happen. If you've ever been lost, especially in the Mountain West or you're on, or, you know, somewhere in the mountains and, and you're not quite sure where you, need, where, you're, where you are and you find a stream, I can tell you one thing. If you follow that stream, you're going to get down from the mountain because streams go down. You think, here's a stream. What should I do? I want to get down, but maybe I'll follow it up. No, it's wrong choice. You want to get down, follow the water. It goes down. You want to get where Jesus does miracles? Follow where people need help. Follow where people need help. You're going to find Jesus. He'll be there. Sometimes waiting, sometimes working. But always that's the place where he meets people. All of his miracles, that's where he meets them. There was a need, and Jesus helps people. That's not the only reason he does miracles, but it is the big reason why he does miracles. So when we place ourselves in that pathway of helping people, we are closer to miracles than we would be when we stand back and go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, people are good. Let them fend for themselves. We walk away from that stream of miracles where Jesus will still do them. All right, number two, observation in this beginning of miracles that are as a pattern for others. And I want you to watch this closely. And this, this relates to the story I told you at the beginning and why I told it. Jesus asked them for what they had and changed it into what they needed. I want you to think about that. He asked them for what they had, water, and changed it into what they needed, wine. This, friends, is a biblical pattern. This is throughout the entire Bible and the entire works of Jesus. How about the feeding of the 5,000? Remember, he looked at his disciples and said, feed them. We'd all have to work a year and donate our entire year's salary to pay for a lunch for these people. Jesus said, what do you have? Nathaniel spoke up, or Andrew it was, and said, there was a boy here with a lunch. He said, go get it. Jesus asks us for what we have, not what we don't have. And he changes it into what we need. That's the miracle process of Jesus. Now, that sounds really simple, but you know why it's hard? Because when we need miracles, we're desperate. And desperation goes to God and goes, God, I need your help or else I can't go on like this. Where are you? I need you. And we're desperate. And God's response to our desperation almost never is, hold still, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, son. 
His response says, what do you have for me? For you? What about me? Remember the story I mentioned, the widow with the oil in the barrels? She was desperate. The bill collectors were coming. Her husband had died. She had no income. And they said, because of your debts, we're going to take your children as slaves until your debt is paid. You think bill collectors are bad today. That's rough. What do I do? I'm desperate. She went to the prophet. What do I do? He said, what do you have? What do I have? Trouble. Debts. Bills. My kid's gone. That's what I have. Where's God? The prophet said, what do you have? He said, I got a little bit of oil left. He said, that's all you need. That's what I want. Someone told a story once. He said, felt like God was taking him from a place of need to a place of better. He said he was in church service, and, and there was an offering being passed by, and he said, God spoke to him and said, I want you to give $100. He said, that's all I have. God said, that's all I want. <laughs> What do you have, widow? I've got oil. He said, great. Go get a bunch of buckets, barrels, containers of every kind. Fill the house with them. And then at the word of the Lord, pour that oil. And she started boiling her little pint jar of oil. And it filled bucket after bucket after bucket after bucket. A miracle. But not without what she had. Not without what she had. Elijah, the prophet, during the time of famine went to the Shunammite woman. They're starving. He walks up to her house at God's bidding and said, what are you doing there, lady? Uh, we're just going to cook our last little pancake and then we're going to eat it and starve because the whole world's in a famine. We've got no more food. He said, okay, great. Just one thing, please. What's that? Bake me a cake first, will you? That sounds like tele-evangelism scandal stuff to me. <laughs> you got a widow? and her son, and they're going to starve, and, and they're going to bake their last pancake, and you say, hey, please, I need to tithe off of that pancake. I, you know, it's like, what was it? It wasn't that. It was God saying, I'm going to turn what you have into what you need, but I'm going to change what you are inside first. Because as long as you're desperate, as long as you're, God, I can't, I'm awful, this is life, I can't go on, what a, you're a victim. God wants to turn you out of that victim mode. What do you have? Well, I have this. I'll take it, and I'll do something with it. They had water. They turned it into wine. God turned it into wine. The widow had oil. God multiplied it. The boy had a lunch. God multiplied that. The widow had a pancake, and God multiplied her flour. God takes, he asks you for what you have and changes it into what you need. That's the essence of a miracle. So many times as this church, as we spoke about all these years, so many times we've come to you and out of your generosity, you've responded. We said we need to build a children's wing. We want to minister to children. We know that God can, can touch kids' lives and we want to have a place for them. And you respond with generosity and you turn money into the Lord and you offer it to him. And months later, we see dozens and dozens of kids finding Jesus, learning about Jesus week after week after week. He turned that water into wine. And he still works that way. He takes what we have and he turns it into what we need. And the last thing I want to share with you this morning. Because of these miracles of Jesus, God's glory was seen and people believed 
in Jesus. Because of these miracles, God's glory is seen and people believe in Jesus. Now, I already mentioned that the ultimate, the goal of, of God in miracles is to help people. And that's true. But you should remember, Christian, that helping people is not just for now. It should be forever. You know, we read stories in the Bible about great healings and miracles. Even people being raised from the dead. You read in John's gospel about Lazarus being raised from the dead after being dead for four days. And we go, what a miracle. How cool would that be? I've always thought, you know, I don't know how cool it would be. Lazarus had to die twice. You ever thought about it? You can be healed, but unless Jesus comes first, you'll eventually die of something. You can have a miracle right now and have God provide for your needs. But eventually, the home we built is going to be a pile of dust. Eventually, the answer we prayed for is going to be no longer important. But one thing will, the eternal soul in our hearts. That will be important. And if there's a real target that God has for miracles, it's what was the last verse we read out of John 2. And his disciples believed in him. They trusted him. They said, you're the man. That's his goal. And I can tell you that we as Christians, if we want to be close to Jesus today, I'm telling you how. Make that your goal. Make that your goal. This has been an interesting year or so. Interesting year. And you know what's made it the most challenging? I can't speak for your life, but I know what it's like leading a church through all the stuff we've been through. The biggest challenge, the biggest challenge is to not be distracted into all the crazy that's going on in our world. Because you know what doesn't change? Pandemics change, governments change, politics change. You know what never changes? Your neighbor down the street and their eternal soul that needs Jesus. That hasn't changed. Oh, well, they're a liberal or they're a conservative. Doesn't matter what they are. Their soul is who Jesus died for. And that doesn't change. We've worked very hard. Not that we're successful, but we're working very hard at keeping that the center of a church focus. That should be the very aim of our Christian life. Jesus did all this miracle and turned water into wine, but there will be a day where nobody cares what it tasted like. But those souls who Jesus touched will be in heaven for all of eternity. That's the target of Jesus' miracle. Would you stand with me this morning? As we stand in before I pray, two quick questions. Will you let Jesus use your potential problem need or crisis to help someone else find him? Because that's the first step of a miracle. Will you let Jesus use your potential problem, crisis, or need to help bring people to him? I hope you will. And then number two, will you surrender what you have in order for God to bring what he, you, and others need to further his cause. Will you give him what you have so he can do with it and turn it into what people need? That's the moral. That's the lesson of the wedding 
in Cana. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray just now that you by the Holy Spirit would, would take this amazing story and make it alive in our hearts today. There are some of us here who just need to realize that we're not a victim, that you're offering us, even through our problems, an opportunity for a miracle to happen that will touch an eternal soul. Keep us pleased, Jesus. Keep us from hard-heartedness. Keep us from not caring. Help us and forgive us for our distractions that have taken us away from the heart of your love for others. And help us to be willing to offer you what we have so that you can bring us what we and others need. We ask it in Jesus' name. And now if you'll bow your heads as we've been praying. If you're here in this place and you have not yet really surrendered to Jesus, maybe you're like those disciples, maybe you've been following, maybe you sort of believe, maybe you know, you, you know you're in the right path, but you've never made this personal choice to say, Jesus, this is me, I'm coming to you, I want you to change me and make me what you want me to be, I want you to be my savior. Maybe you're watching at home and that's describing you. You can welcome Jesus today with a simple prayer. It won't be magical, but it will be powerful. If you're here today and you would like to welcome Jesus in that way, we'll pray with you. Would you raise your hand so we know it's you? Just to pray. Say, yes, I need Jesus. If you're watching at home, let me encourage you, if you're feeling that this is speaking to you, that you can call out to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I receive you. And that'll be the beginning of an eternity and a wonderful adventure with him. Lord, we pray for your blessing on all who are here today. And as we go our way, we pray that you would make us a blessing to others in your name, amen. If you have any needs that you would like prayer for today, we have people who will be at our altar who would love to pray for and with you. Come forward if you need. And the rest of you, God bless you. You may be dismissed.